0: We're very pleased to have Dan Peterson speak. Dan has been a constant figure of ours at our Fair Mormon conferences. He typically closes our our meeting, or closes down our meeting. I don't know how to put that. He's typically the the concluding speaker at our meetings here. He's a native of Southern California. He received a degree in Greek and philosophy from Brigham Young University and studied several years in Jerusalem and Cairo, and earned his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Cultures from the University of California at Los Angeles, that's UCLA. Uh, Dr. Peterson is a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at BYU, where he has taught the Arabic language and literature at all levels, Islamic philosophy, Islamic culture, and civilization, and there's a lot more here you can read. So he's prolific in his writing and speaking, so here he is, Dan Peterson. Many years ago, I received an angry note from a young returned missionary husband and father, a graduate student in a distant state, denouncing the Church for lying about its history and denouncing me for my alleged role in defending those lies. An exchange ensued. I tried to persuade him that he was wrong. He remained hostile, and it was easy to see that he was deeply troubled. Abruptly, though, his messages stopped. After a while, oddly uneasy about the silence and following several unanswered notes inquiring whether he was all right. I called the institute director at the school where he'd been studying. My worries were confirmed in the worst possible way. The young man, I was told, had killed himself with a shotgun a month or two before, just about the time our correspondence had ended. Obviously, I was horrified. I wondered what, if anything, I might have done to help. I read and reread our correspondence looking for signs that I should have picked up. I don't know exactly what went into this young man's decision to end his life and to do it in such a horrible way. There may have been, there probably were, many factors involved, but I'm reasonably confident that his loss of faith and his bitter alienation from the church contributed. Obviously, most who leave Mormonism don't take their own lives. Some glide painlessly out. I understand them. A pay increase, an extra day each week, and no meetings. The attractions are obvious. (laughs) Others, however, go through periods, whether brief or lifelong, of resentful anger. Important relationships with neighbors, children, parents, spouses, and extended family sometimes rupture in the wake of what we believers call apostasy. Often they suffer from depression. A world charged with eternal meaning and relationships suffused with cosmic significance can become an abyss of sheer pointlessness, culminating in oblivion. These things matter. I recently received a note from a psychiatrist in Georgia, in my judgment himself a victim of his loss of faith, begging me to persuade church leaders to stop their lying. He claims, and I have no reason to doubt him, that he deals with the consequences of those alleged lies in his own practice when fellow disaffected Latter-day Saints seek him out for help. I'm not a professional counselor. Though as I've gained experience over my uncountable decades, I've come to recognize more and more the help that such counselors can provide. But I believe that there's an even more fundamental cure for the emotional and psychological turmoil caused by disillusionment and loss of faith. That cure is a return to faith and trust. I don't wonder at the havoc that complete loss of faith can induce in sensitive souls. Listen to what the outspokenly atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell says in his 1903 essay, A Free Man's Worship that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving that his origin his growth his hopes and fears his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire no heroism no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labors of the ages all the devotion all the inspiration all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Now somehow unyielding despair doesn't seem a very promising basis for a happy life. The French philosopher and writer Albert Camus published a famous 1942 collection of essays titled The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he grappled with the view that we're just a pointless combination of chemicals with what he labeled the absurdity of the human situation. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, he wrote, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. A robust faith, like the loss of one, makes a difference. For one thing, faith apparently makes people healthier. Neither in my private life nor in my writings, Sigmund Freud wrote in a 1938 letter to Charles Singer, have I ever made a secret of being an out-and-out unbeliever. Indeed, he wrote to Marie Bonaparte, I regard myself as one of the most dangerous enemies of religion. And in fact, he was plainly obsessed with religion, treating it repeatedly in such books as Totem and Taboo, The Future of an Illusion, Civilization and Its Discontents, and Moses and Monotheism comparing the wishful illusions of religion to blissful hallucinatory confusion, religious teachings to neurotic relics, and religion itself to a universal obsessive compulsive neurosis and a childhood neurosis. And this theme of religious faith as psychological defect, a sickness of the mind, remains popular among modern atheists too. Faith, declares Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene, seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. It is difficult to imagine a set of beliefs more suggestive of mental illness, agrees Sam Harris in his 2004 bestseller, The End of Faith, than those that lie at the heart of many of our religious traditions. So, are religious people by definition sick, mentally ill? Is atheism healthier than faith? For several decades, Armin Niccoli, a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, as well as the editor and co-author of the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry, has taught an honors course for Harvard College and Harvard Medical School that's focused on Freud and the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis. Although the two never actually met, Niccoli puts them in dialogue in comparison with each other. This isn't as arbitrary as it might seem. Lewis, an atheist for half of his life, was well aware of Freud's writings. In 2002, based upon that course, Nicolay published The Question of God. C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud debate God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. It's a fascinating study, and one could easily argue from it that Lewis led a healthier and happier life than did Freud. Via such publications as Is Religion Good for Your Health? The Effects of Religion on Mental and Mental Health, Physical and Mental Health, his Handbook of Religion and Mental Health, and his editorship of the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Health, Harold Koenig, a psychiatrist on the faculty of Duke University, has established himself as a premier authority in this area. He and his collaborators argue that religious involvement is correlated with better mental health in the areas of depression, substance abuse, and suicide, and somewhat less certainly, with better results in the treatment of stress-related disorders and dementia. Moreover, according to Tyler Vanderveel, professor of epidemiology at Harvard University, recent research published by himself and his colleagues in various top-tier medical journals confirms the links that previous scientific investigation had identified between attendance at religious services and enhanced health. Regular attendance is associated, for example, with a roughly 30% reduction in mortality, over 16 years of follow-up, a fivefold reduction in the likelihood of suicide, and a 30% reduction in the incidence of depression, Vanderweel writes. But the apparent blessings don't end there. Regular participation in communal religious worship appears to be associated with greater likelihood of healthy social relationships and stable marriages, an increased sense of meaning in life, higher life satisfaction, an expansion of one's social network, and more charitable giving, volunteering, and civic engagement," says Vanderweel. One might perhaps conclude that it's the social support afforded by religious participation that confers such benefits. Vanderweel, however, says that social support accounts for only about 20 to 30 percent of the measured results. The self-discipline encouraged by religious faith and the optimistic worldview that it supports also appear to be important contributing factors to physical health and longevity. Of course, none of this proves religious claims are true, but it does strongly suggest that faith isn't an illness, and that on that point, at least, Freud and his followers are wrong. Persisting in the Freudian tradition, however, one standard British psychiatric textbook from the mid-20th century declares that religion is for, quote, the hesitant, the guilt-ridden, the excessively timid, those lacking clear convictions with which to face life, end quote. In his 2009 book, *Is Faith Delusion, Why Religion is Good for Your Health, Dr. Andrew Sims, former president of the United Kingdom's Royal College of Psychiatrists and professor of psychiatry at the University of Leeds, Contends on the basis of his own psychiatric practice, as well as a large number of scientific studies, that people with religious belief, rather than being timid and lacking clear convictions, have a greater sense of direction and feeling of independence from control. Indeed, one of the major themes of his book is that religious belief tends to be associated with better health, both physical and mental. Quote, the advantageous effect of religious belief and spirituality on mental and physical health is one of the best-kept secrets in psychiatry and medicine generally, he writes. If the findings of the huge volume of research on this topic had gone in the opposite direction and it had been found that religion damages your mental health, it would have been front-page news in every newspaper in the land. Moreover, Sims contends, Churches are almost the only element in society to have offered considerate, caring, long-lasting, and self-sacrificing support to the mentally ill, which is one of the reasons why religious involvement results in a better outcome from a range of illnesses, both mental and physical. In the majority of scientific studies, Sims summarizes, religious involvement correlates with enhanced well-being, happiness, and life satisfaction, greater hope and optimism, even when facing serious diseases such as breast cancer, a stronger sense of purpose and meaning in life, higher self-esteem, better responses to bereavement, greater social support, less loneliness, lower rates of depression and faster recovery from depression, reduced rates of suicide, decreased anxiety, better coping with stress, less psychosis and fewer psychotic tendencies, lower rates of alcohol and drug abuse, less delinquency and criminal activity, and greater marital stability and satisfaction. A strong faith and the positive relationships and thinking associated with church membership fortify the immune system, quote, thus reducing the risk of cancer, improving general health, and protecting the cardiovascular system, end quote. When looking at the overall effects of religious belief and practice on whole populations, he writes, there is substantial evidence that religion is highly beneficial for all areas of health, and especially mental health. Indeed, correlations between religious faith and improved well-being quote, typically equal or exceed correlations between well-being and other psychosocial variables, such as social support. And, he adds, this uh, substantial assertion is comprehensively attested to by a large amount of evidence. In one well-conducted study, Sims reports, almost 3,000 women who regularly attended church services were assessed for health status, social support, and habits. When they were followed up 28 years later, their mortality over that period was found to be more than a third less than the general population. Furthermore, quote, an inverse relationship has been found between religious involvement and suicidal behavior in 84% of 68 studies. That is, those with religious belief and practice are less likely to kill themselves. This association is also found for attempted suicide. Believers are less likely to take overdoses or use other methods of self harm. The nagging question we are left with, Sims asks, why is this important information, epidemiological medicine's best kept secret, not better known? If it were anything other than religious belief or spirituality resulting in such beneficial outcomes for health, the media would trumpet it, and governments and healthcare organizations would be rushing to implement its practice. One of the most interesting and provocative social analysts in America today is Arthur Brooks, currently president of the American Enterprise Institute. In 2004, Dr. Brooks published Who Really Cares? in which he notes that scores of studies have demonstrated that believers live longer, healthier lives. People who never attend religious services are at the highest risk of early death, while those who attend more than once each week have the lowest such risk. At age 20, this translates into a seven-year difference in average life expectancy. Religious people heal more quickly from serious diseases and surgeries. Remarkably, too, in victims of HIV four years after diagnosis, those who've become religious show noticeably lower rates of disease progression than do their unbelieving fellow sufferers. In addition, as many studies have shown, religious people tend to be much happier and more satisfied than the irreligious. They cope better with crises. They recover faster from divorce, bereavement, and being fired. They enjoy higher rates of marital stability and marital satisfaction. They're less likely to be depressed, to become alcoholics or drug addicts, to commit suicide or to commit crimes. Elderly religious people are much less likely to be depressed, but if they are, they're less so than their unbelieving counterparts. In 2008, Brooks published a book titled Gross National Happiness. In it, drawing on the relevant sociological literature, he presents his case for what makes us happy and what doesn't. Religious people of all faiths are on average markedly happier than secularists. And this is true even when wealth, age, and education are taken into account. In one major survey, 23% of secularists reported being very happy with their lives, versus 43% of religious respondents. Believers are a third more likely to express optimism about the future. Unbelievers are almost twice as likely as the religious to say, I'm inclined to feel I'm a failure. In 2004, 36% of those who prayed every day said they were very happy, while only 21% of those who never prayed said so. Data from 1998 revealed that people who are certain that God exists were a third more likely to describe themselves as very happy than those who denied his existence. Curiously, agnostics were more gloomy than atheists. Only 12% of agnostics surveyed claimed to be very happy. People who asserted that there was little truth in any religion were roughly half as likely to assert a high degree of happiness as those who believed that religion contains significant truth. Believers in life after death are about a third more likely than non-believers to call themselves very happy. By contrast, people who say that we don't survive death are three quarters more likely to say that they aren't very happy correcting for other cultural factors and comparing apples with apples. People who live in religious communities also fare better financially than do those who live in relatively secular communities. Brooks cites an economist who investigated the effect on one's income when others in one's community are religiously active. For instance, he measured how the church attendance of Italian-American Catholics affected the incomes of African-American Protestants in the same neighborhood. His conclusion? The more your neighbors go to church, the more you will tend to prosper. This is probably because of the cultural benefits that accrue to a community as a whole when a significant proportion of the community follows typical religious standards. There's likely, for example, to be less divorce and drug abuse, both of which cause economic woes. And such influence in community attracts like-minded people into a neighborhood, thus improving it further. An advocate of greater secularism might concede that religious fantasies provide a helpful crutch for stupid, ignorant, and or irrational people, whereas better educated, more honest unbelievers uh, face reality without such comfort. A 2004 study, however, showed that religious adults were a third less likely than secular adults to lack a high school diploma, and a third more likely to to have at least one college degree. Given two people, one of whom has a college degree and one of whom doesn't, but who earn the same salary and are identical in age, gender, race, and political views, the college graduate will be 7% more likely to be a churchgoer. Secularizing writers often like to imagine how much better the world would be without religion. They should pray that they don't get their wish. (laughs) Several years ago, I read some heartfelt online advice from an atheist. Life is a one-time roller coaster ride, he said. Revel in it. Feel the warm sun on your skin and the cool wind in your hair. I, I wish I could. <laughs> Feel the climb up and take in the rides to the bottom. Don't spend the entire experience preparing and fretting for what others in the line told you about the exit and what they think comes after. Otherwise, you'll miss the entire experience. I have little doubt that his advice was sincere, but it's also misdirected. There's no reason to suppose that typical religious believers feel the warm sun and the cool air less than unbelievers do. They're not exempt from the climbs up and the sometimes terrifying rides down. And no matter how devout they may be, there's no evidence that most believers devote so much time preparing for the next life, so much energy fretting about it, that they miss the entire experience of this one. In view of the evidence I've cited from Arthur Brooks, that that online atheist would serve his readers better if he sought to build their faith rather than encouraging them to abandon it. Although Mortal Life is indeed a roller coaster ride, he shouldn't be urging them to ignore the fact that when it ends, they'll all need to pass through the exit. Religious believers are convinced that there is an unfathomably vast world out there beyond the exit gate for this particular ride. To continue the poster's metaphor, those who have come to the amusement park with tickets for other attractions, money to buy food when it's lunchtime, and jackets to wear in the evening, will be able to enjoy much more than just the one feature. They're going to have a better time than those who are focused so intently on enjoying their one time roller coaster ride that, at its end, they lack the resources or ability to enjoy anything else. There's no evidence that those who think of the future miss out altogether on the present. In fact, evidence suggests the contrary. Religious believers, if they're correct, get a better future. In any case, they apparently get a better today. I'm an atheist, the late actress Catherine Hepburn once told an interviewer, and that's it. I believe there's nothing we can know except that we should be kind to each other and do what we can for each other. Now, plainly, atheists can be and often are good people. It's it's wonderful that Catherine Hepburn knew those things. I believe that she did know them. I hope that she acted accordingly. But how did she know them? It's one thing to believe in moral principles. It's quite another to be able to justify them, to give an account of their source. And this seems to me a particular problem for atheists. Morality, writes the evolutionary atheist philosopher Michael Ruse, Or more strictly our belief in morality is merely an adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends hence the basis of ethics doesn't lie in god's will or in the metaphysical roots of evolution or any other part of the framework of the universe in an important sense ethics as we understand it is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate it's without external grounding ethics is produced by evolution but is not justified by it problem is once i've recognized that morality is an illusion Why should I feel bound by it, especially when I can safely ignore it? We are survival machines, says the British biologist and vocal new atheist Richard Dawkins. Nothing more than robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. What natural selection favors, writes Dawkins, is rules of thumb, which work in practice to promote the genes that built them rules of thumb by their nature sometimes misfire in a bird's brain the rule look after small squawking things in your nest and drop food into their red mouths typically has the effect of preserving the genes that built the rule because the squawking gaping objects in an adult bird's nest are normally its own offspring the rule misfires though if another baby bird somehow gets into the nest a circumstance that's positively engineered by cuckoos Could it be that our good Samaritan urges are misfiring, analogous to the misfiring of a weed warbler's parental instincts when it works itself to the bone for a young cuckoo? An even closer analogy is the human urge to adopt a child. That's Dawkins. But does adoption or contributing to relief for unrelated poor people in distant countries or risking one's life to save a stranger really represent mere evolutionary error? To his credit, Dawkins himself recoils from the idea. He calls such acts precious mistakes. But why are they precious? What does that mean beyond the mere fact that he likes them, as he might like broccoli or the Beach Boys? The universe that we observe, he's also written, has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. On what objective grounds, if any then, can someone holding this view say that failure to help a child or to fight third-world hunger is wrong? On what basis even can such a person condemn murder, rape, or child abuse? If somebody else endorses them, on what basis can a Dawkins disagree? The Nazis regarded killing Jews and gypsies and enslaving Slavs as good things. Are these only matters of opinion? Thirty years after first seeing it, I still vividly remember the chilling scene in Franco Zeffirelli's 1986 film version of Verdi's opera Othello, in which Iago sings his very Darwinian creed, I believe in a cruel God, who created me in his image, and who in fury I name. From the very vileness of a germa or an atom, vile was I born. I am a wretch because I am a man, and I feel within me the primeval slime. Yes, this is my creed. I believe it with a heart as steadfast as that of the widow in church. And the evil I think, and that which I perform, I think and do by destiny's decree. I believe the just man to be a mocking actor in face and heart, that all his being is a lie. Tear, kiss, glance, sacrifice, and honor. And I believe, man, the sport of evil fate, from the germ of the cradle to the worm of the grave. After all this mockery, then comes death. And then, and then, death is nothingness. Heaven, an old wives' tale. On what rational grounds can a follower of Richard Dawkins demonstrate Iago's lethal immorality to be wrong? Faith or non-faith, we cannot escape the decision. Not to decide is to decide. It will deeply mark how we live our lives. To live as an agnostic is, practically speaking, to live as an atheist. By just about any measure, Western society has grown much more secular in recent decades. This is likely to have consequences. It makes a difference. For as long as I can remember, non-religious people have assured me that while I'm supposedly focused on some sort of illusory pie in the sky when I die, and on saving others from mythical sufferings in a fairy-tale afterlife, they're devoted to making life in this world, on this planet, tangibly better for everybody. In my particular case, of course, the critics may be right. They're very likely far better people than I am, more charitable, kinder, more concerned for their fellow humans. However, unless they actually supply evidence to demonstrate it, Arthur Brooks' 2006 volume, Who Really Cares?, has made it much, much harder for seculars to preen themselves as a class on their superior compassion. Brooks has studied patterns in charitable giving and service for many, many years, and is widely recognized as perhaps the preeminent authority on the subject. Still, even he reports that he's been surprised by what he's found. Religious people, it turns out, give more to charity than do non-religious people. They donate more money, and not merely to their churches, synagogues, temples, and mosques. They're more likely to give money to family and friends, and when they do, to give larger amounts. They're far more likely to give food or money to the homeless and to donate blood and even to return money from a cashier's mistake or to express empathy for the less fortunate. It's 15% more likely that church-going Europeans will volunteer for non-religious charities than their secular compatriots. Even non-churchgoers, if they were raised in religious households, are more likely to donate to charity than those who were not. Not surprisingly, private charity in ever more secular Europe has plummeted, to the point in some areas almost of extinction. Brooks, who also argues that charitable giving is essential to a strong economy, points to polling data suggesting that Europeans are, according to their own reports, less happy with their lives than Americans are, and suggests that their unhappiness may be connected with their low rates of charity and volunteerism. Humans feel better when they give. Ninety-one percent of American religious conservatives give to charitable causes compared to only sixty-seven percent of those who identify themselves as secular liberals. Those who pray daily are thirty percent more likely to give to charity than people who never pray. In Europe too, churchgoers volunteer thirty percent more often overall than non-churchgoers. Even controlling for other factors, eighty-three percent of religious Americans will volunteer in any given year, while among secular French people, only twenty-seven percent will. As befits a premier social scientist, Brooks employs multiple streams of contemporary statistical data to form his judgments. However, the historical record also seems to support the general conclusions of his very important book. The respected and prolific sociologist Rodney Stark, in an insightful study of the rise of Christianity, has shown that the superior charity of the ancient Christians was a vital factor in the rapid growth of the early Christian movement. And as an examination of the surviving sources demonstrates, even the pagans recognize that. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well, lamented the fourth century pagan Roman Emperor Julian. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Religion is the opiate of the people, Karl Marx famously complained. Elsewhere he remarked that while philosophers have said that the purpose of philosophy is to understand the world, the true purpose is to change it. Religion, in his view, was a distraction from the real business of making this world a better place. Unfortunately for Marx's thesis though, and even more so for those who had to live through the 20th century, the millennium that just closed was heavily influenced at its end by Marxism and by a related ideology that went under the names of fascism and national socialism or Nazism. We now have quite graphic evidence of exactly how such theories tend to change the world. We must rid ourselves once and for all, wrote the Bolshevik revolutionary Leon Trotsky in his 1930 book, The Russian Revolution, of the Quaker papist babble about the sanctity of human life. And they did. Scholarly estimates of atheistic communism's murders alone over the past century ranged from roughly 40.5 million to nearly 260 million. But Marxism merely followed a path blazed for it by the French Revolution's anti-Catholic and anti-Christian reign of terror. Citizen Robespierre and his associates, determined to establish a cult of reason, killed many thousands of innocent people, sometimes cleanly via the guillotine, but often through disgusting and obscene torture. In 1983, the great 1970 Nobel Literature Laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn, fearless chronicler of the crimes of Soviet Communism, delivered a lecture sometimes titled, Godlessness, The First Step to the Gulag. The opening lines of that address deserve full quotation more than half a century ago while i was still a child i recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen russia men have forgotten god that's why all this has happened Since then, I've spent well-nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now, at the end of the century, against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, Men have forgotten God. Even when contrasted with the soft secularism that's come to dominate Europe, perhaps Canada, and certain portions of the American elite, and even though religious people can undoubtedly do much more and much better than they're doing now, believers fare pretty well. In America's Blessings, How Religion Benefits Everyone, Including Atheists, Rodney Stark draws a number of striking conclusions after surveying the relevant data. Some of this will repeat what I've already said, which is fine. I want it to be remembered. Regardless of their age, Stark says, religious people are much less likely to commit crimes. Accordingly, the higher a city's church membership rate, the lower its rates of burglary, larceny, robbery, assault, rape, sexually transmitted disease, and homicide. In a cleverly designed test at Pepperdine University, a disappointing 45% of weekly church attenders turned out to be honest. But that was still more than three times the 13% rating of non-attenders. Curiously, however, although nearly 250 studies conducted between 1944 and 2010 showed clear evidence that religion helps to reduce delinquency, deviation, and crime, virtually no standard textbooks on criminology so much as mention religion in their indexes. But the fact remains, says Stark, that, quote, all Americans are safer and their property more secure because this is such a religious nation, end quote. Religious people are, as I've said, the primary source of charitable funds, not only for religious causes, but for secular philanthropies that benefit all victims of distress and misfortune. They are far more likely to volunteer their time for programs that benefit society and to be active in civic matters. As I've already noted, fashionable schools of psychology have long taught that religion either contributes to mental illness or is itself a dangerous species of psychopathology. But the evidence, says Professor Stark, quote, shows overwhelmingly that religion protects against mental illness. For example, persons with strong conservative religious beliefs are less depressed than those with weak and loose religious beliefs. They are happier, less neurotic, and far less likely to commit suicide. Religious people are more likely to marry and to stay married than their irreligious counterparts, and on the whole, they express greater satisfaction with their marriages and their spouses. They are far less likely to have extramarital affairs. In addition, Religious husbands are substantially less likely to abuse their wives or children. Mother-child relationships are stronger for frequent church attenders than for those who rarely, if ever, go to church. And for mothers and children who regard religion as very important, they're stronger than for those church attenders who don't value religion very highly. Precisely the same thing holds for the level of satisfaction of teenagers with their families. Greater religiosity means higher satisfaction. Strongly religious persons seem, all other things being equal, to enjoy reduced risks of heart disease, strokes, and high blood pressure or hypertension than those who are less religious, and seem to recover better from coronary artery bypass surgery. The average life expectancy of religious Americans is more than seven years longer than that of the irreligious. Moreover, quote, a very substantial difference remains even when the effects of clean living have been factored out. Religious students tend to get better grades than do their non-religious counterparts, as well as to score higher on all standardized achievement tests. They are less likely to be expelled or suspended or to drop out of school, and are more likely to do their homework. Religious Americans are also on average more successful in their careers than are the irreligious. They obtain better jobs and are less likely to find themselves unemployed or on welfare. Committed religious believers are less likely to patronize astrologers, or to believe in the occult and the paranormal, than are non-believers. On the other hand, though they're often caricatured as ignorant, churchgoers are more likely to read, to patronize the arts, and to enjoy classical music than are non-churchgoers. Translated into comparisons with Western European, European nations, writes Professor Stark, addressing an American audience, we enjoy far lower crime rates, much higher levels of charitable giving, better health, stronger marriages, and less suicide, to note only a few of our benefits from being an unusually religious nation. Once again, none of these facts proves religious claims true, but they certainly undermine the old accusation that religion is unhealthy and antisocial. As Harvard's Robert Putnam expresses it in his famous book, Bowling Alone. Believing churchgoers are, quote, much more likely than other persons to visit friends, to entertain at home, to attend club meetings, and to belong to sports groups, professional and academic societies, school service groups, youth groups, service clubs, hobby or garden clubs, literary, art, discussion and study groups, school fraternities and sororities, farm organizations, political clubs, nationality groups, and other miscellaneous groups. So, asks Mary Eberstadt in her book, How the West Really Lost God, Is it in society's interest to encourage Christian practice? She then provides her own response. The answer is, only so far as it is in society's interest to encourage quality of life, and hence health, happiness, coping, less crime, less depression, and other such benefits associated with religious involvement.